Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Canada's worst wildfire season ever could now be its longest. This year's already devastating season is not yet over. The fire forecast right into the fall. The Labor Day long weekend is the unofficial end to our Canadian summer, but it won't be the end of the fires. People tried to put sprinklers on their homes and whatnot, and it just wasn't enough. 30,000 people are on evacuation order. 36,000 others have been told to get ready to leave at a moment's notice. Uh, As it gets dark, the fire is going to look like it is right on top of the community. There'll be glow and, and huge flames visible. And I see my house, it was just totally, totally destroyed. Like I was totally lost and it just disappeared. By the middle of August, more than 14 million hectares had also gone up in smoke an area about double the size of New Brunswick. It's also doubled the previous record set more than 30 years ago. These unprecedented wildfires have dominated the headlines and so many people's lives. I saw the big signs, handwritten signs uh, for evacuees, you know, instructions for things. And it really hit home that, that, that that's me, you know. So they give you vouchers and tickets and a place to stay for the next couple of days. Our family was actually living right inside the red zone. We had to evacuate to our grandparents to stay out of like, the area. So the forest fire was like, coming close to our neighborhoods, and that's when we had to evacuate. When I was driving down that road, I looked to my left and I could see flames. The scariest moment of my life by far, just having my children in the back and not knowing if we would be able to get to safety. Neighborhoods leveled, not just in Canada, but around the world in places like Greece, Spain, and Hawaii. It's going to take years for fix. Years. This is not even the worst of it. Still get dead bodies in the water, floating, and on the seawall. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives. Bigger, hotter, faster fires, but it's not the first time we've seen them. Remember Fort McMurray in 2016 and Slave Lake about a decade ago? Alberta communities racking up more than $4 billion in damages and countless stories of suffering. I mean, it was like being in an oven while it's turned on and having someone sandblast you with hot embers at the same time. You you know, you're choking, you can't see, and everything around you is on fire. People used to talk about these infernos as anomalies, once-in-a-lifetime occurrences, but we now know differently. We're now in a new environment, so we're outside all our planning and our design criteria. All bits are off. If you live in the forest, you have to expect that there is a chance a fire will come rolling over the hill towards you, okay? If you live in a city, you know, your house isn't going to get burnt down by a forest fire, but you should be concerned 
because it could have significant impact on transportation, health, evacuation, so economics. We're going to have more megafires. They're going to burn longer and more savagely. If we do nothing, the, the future looks pretty bleak. But there's no reason for us to do nothing. In this episode of Ideas from 2016, CBC Edmonton producer Adrian Lamb explores what this could mean for all of us living in a world on fire. I love this sound. Takes me right back to my childhood, growing up in the bush of northern Ontario, playing beneath the lush green canopy of the boreal forest. Many of us have memories of camping, of hiking, creating a powerful, almost visceral attachment to the outdoors. And for some of us, that deep connection started very early. My interest in fire started at an early age, precisely one year old. I had a birthday cake with a candle in it, and I was fascinated by this candle, so I stuck my finger in the flame, started to cry, but did not remove my finger. I just left it sitting there and crying. And they took a picture of this. They thought it was all hilarious. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by fire. I've been sticking my finger in lots of places. That birthday boy later turned his hand to meteorology and then to academia. I'm Mike Flanagan. I'm director of the Western Partnership for Wildland Fire Science and Professor Wildland Fire at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta. Mike Flanagan makes his living tracking, recording, and analyzing wildfire from coast to coast. In Canada, we keep really good records, and there's no question that we are seeing an increase in area burned. The last three years have been 4 million hectares or above. Our running average is 2 million hectares, so we've doubled our fire activity last few years, and the 2 million hectares is a doubling of the 1970s average area burn. So we see a doubling then. So there's no question there's more fire in the landscape compared to the 1970s. Um, as we continue to warm, we're going to experience more. There's also good records from the United States, Alaska. These are all showing very sharp increases in fire activity in the last few decades. An increase that's now translating into a longer fire season. A dozen firefighters crowd around a screen at the Slave Lake Wildfire Information Center. These are the people who were on the front lines in May of 2011 when a third of their town was reduced to ash. They know what's at stake for the 7,000 residents. They listen intently to the latest weather forecast. The gradient, so we're looking for some fairly brisk uh, winds up in the uh, central and northern parts of the province today, uh, probably in the order of 20 to 25, gusting 35 to 40. Uh, so we'll see. Hot, dry conditions again today, and those after a warm, dry winter. The firefighters have been on the job since March 1st, a full month earlier than usual. And fire crews have been having to start earlier and earlier elsewhere in Canada as well, and in California and Montana and Arizona. I was 18. I said, sure, that sounds great, uh, and was plunged into a very different world, one I, I returned to for 15 summers. 
Starting when he was a wide-eyed teenager, Stephen Pine worked the fire lines in majestic Grand Canyon National Park. And really, as a result of that experience, that kind of wind shear in my life, uh, I became what I, I think of as a pyromantic. Not a pyromaniac, uh, a pyromantic. And fire, increasingly, I, I became intellectually interested in fire and came to see that, you know, uh, on a fire crew, uh, fires organize your season, and then you realize that fire seasons begin to organize your life. And I, I wondered if the same might be true for humanity at large. After all, we are unique fire creatures on a uniquely fire planet. And so that became my kind of intellectual quest. Well, I'm Steve Pine. I'm a professor uh, in the School of Life Sciences at uh, Arizona State University. I'm actually, by training and temperament, a historian. Consider myself mostly a fire historian. Stephen Pine is the fire historian in North America. He's written a dozen books on the love-hate relationship with our oldest flame. It's partly we want to access the value of good fires and we want to prevent the potential damages from bad fires. And manipulating fire in this way, this, we really have a species monopoly over this. We're the only creature that does it, has the capability. I'm sure we would never willingly allow any other organism to acquire it. Uh, other animals knock over trees and dig holes in the ground, hunt. We do fire. That's our singular ecological agency. And we have been dependent on that, on, on firepower, literally, all of our existence. I mean, we got you know, small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now we've become a geologic presence, may even have a geologic epoch named after us because we've begun to cook the planet. So for good or ill, fire has really been at the core of our presence on the planet. The recipe for fire hasn't changed in millennia. A blend of oxygen, fuel, and heat but now, something is different. We're certainly seeing a shift to larger and more damaging fires in our public wildlands, our crown lands, our, our national forests, parks. Um, but if you go back a century, go back two centuries, you see large, lethal fires that are well beyond anything we're seeing now. We're talking about taking out whole communities. We're talking about uh, multi-million acre burns. Actually, Canada's, you know, for North America, the first of the modern era big fires, disastrous settlement fires, was the Miramichi fire in 1825. Spilled over on both sides of the border, but that really started a whole century of really horrific burns uh, tied to land clearing, logging, and uh, settlement in general, an agricultural settlement of the continent. That Miramichi fire killed 160 people. The Great Michigan Fire in 1871 claimed another 200 and destroyed 3,000 buildings. Then in August of 1910, a titanic fire swept through Washington, Montana, and Idaho, killing 87, mostly firefighters. It also destroyed an estimated billion dollars worth of timber. Governments decided then 
they had to do something about these immense fires. They were the inspiration for state-sponsored conservation. That is to say, something had to intervene at a large scale to stop this ruin by fire and axe, as the saying went. And so we created these state-sponsored institutions to do that and gave it over more or less to forestry. While we're not seeing that repeated, we are, in most of the industrial world, seeing a, a reclamation of former rural lands by a kind of urban outmigration. So they're not clearing the landscape to convert it to farms and pastures uh, and logging it off. They're simply putting houses into this situation without doing a lot of the clearing and so forth. And that has created a new fire hazard. A fire hazard that's grown as more and more people move into fire-prone areas. Real estate ads even tout green space close by. Sometimes it's so close by that you can't tell where the city ends and the forest begins. Many houses butt right up against the woods. So our new form of, of settlement uh, is breeding a new wave of fire. And I have to say it, it's sort of bizarre looking at it uh, because, I mean, it's like watching polio or measles come back on a large scale. Hey, we solved this problem. We figured out how to keep towns from burning. Why is this coming back? We have a simple test to say if it's ready to burn or not. If I drop to my knees and then stand up, if my knees are wet, it won't burn, okay? If my knees are dry, we're good to go. So, pardon the good to go, okay? <laughs> and by good, Mike Flanagan means good for fire. The professor is sporting sandals and a Hawaiian shirt peppered with blue palm trees. We've stepped outside his office on the campus of the University of Alberta so he can give me a quick lesson on moisture and fuel. So we're under this tree canopy. It's shaded and there's all there's needles and bits of twigs and it's very dry. It's uh, hot, dry and windy and if we had a match or a lightning strike, this stuff would readily burn. And this material in the forest often goes down 10-15 centimeters, maybe more, of organic material that's just been stacked. This is common of most parts of the boreal forest. Needles, leaves, twigs. It's the stuff we might find in public parks. It's also placed purposefully, decoratively, in our very own gardens. Mike Flanagan recalls seeing mulch lining the front walk and driveway of one home in Slave Lake. Fire is opportunistic, so it finds a path. It, it's probe searches. And there was one house I remember in particular that had this mulch along the driveway, and that's how the fire got the house. It came up along, like there was grass that was green enough that it didn't burn. But it burned along the mulch, got to the house, and burnt the house down. It just needed a wick, okay? It just needed to find a path or a wick, and away it went. So when dry, is fuel. And that's what many of the weather people say is, if the weather is severe, fuel is fuel is fuel. It will burn, okay? 
regardless of what type of tree it is or what's on the ground. If it's hot, dry, windy, long enough, everything burns. Everything burns, so we should guard against fire, wage war on it the instant it starts. Back in his seventh-floor office, Mike Flanagan says striking the enemy early gives you your best shot at success. If it's an unwanted fire, you hit it hard, you hit it fast. Initial attack, it's called. You get there as quick as possible. If the fire is the size of my office, which isn't very large, it's easy for an experienced fire crew to put it out. If the fire is the size of a football field, if you get there half an hour later or something, and it's hot, dry, and windy, you have a real problem putting that out, even with the experienced crew and water bombers and things like that. Hot, dry, windy with the right fuels, the game's almost over. And that's been the message in North America for at least the last 100 years. Flanagan says our modern combat with fire really took off in the 1940s. Much of the fire world is based on legacy, okay? Uh, the terminology we use, very military, uh, water bombers. And a lot of this because modern fire management started after the Second World War. A lot of the pilots uh, that were no longer needed for the war effort found jobs in firefighting. So a lot of the terminology is kind of military-based. It's a fight. We fight wildland fires, and it's almost like the enemy, and, uh, you know, we conquered that fire. To conquer fire, a multi-billion dollar industry grew up with ever-larger fire agencies and equipment contractors and a mascot. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Smokey, the poster bear for the longest-running public service campaign in American history. You have so many reasons to protect your forests. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Only you. Now, in his 70s, Smokey is still the face and fur of the campaign. But now he's got a Twitter handle, a blog, and a new version of his original catchphrase. Only you can prevent wildfires. The shift in language reflects a shift in thinking. It changed partly because of something that happened in the granddaddy of national parks in North America, Yellowstone. A third of that park went up in flames in 1988. And it's kind of changed their philosophy from, you know, it was a disaster. Yellowstone burned down. It's horrible, okay? All those trees have died, and some wildlife does die in the process. I mean, those that fly, fly away. Those that run, try and run away. But, you know, not everything gets away. But you go there after the fire, and you see new wildflowers, new trees come up. It's just nature's way of cycling. Nature needs fire. So over the last few decades, agencies have been carefully burning forests in a limited way. The idea is to use prescribed, low-intensity burns to unlock the natural cycles and to safely use up extra forest fuel before something wild, something out of control happens. Uh, exiting Fort McMurray right now. Over to our right here, this was a Super 8 and a Denny's, and uh, that's gone. But it's hard to see the devastation in Slave Lake or Fort McMurray and think, well, maybe fire is not all bad. 
It's a bit like saying that um, we don't like rain because we can get flooding, but at the same time we see how productive rain is in terms of allowing the environment to, to grow and create streams and, and uh, natural environments. This is Kevin Tolhurst, a professor of fire management and ecology at the University of Melbourne. He's earned the Order of Australia for his insights into the bush and fire. He's based in a rural campus at Creswick, a spot that's been a forestry school for the last 100 years. Fire has this ability to, to be able to regenerate areas, redistribute nutrients across the landscape, readdress competition balances. It provides opportunity for for plants in particular to be able to move across the landscape. Fire is a, an amazing enabling process in the landscape and we need to have it. And in fact, one of our problems has been that we've reduced fire in the landscape to too great an extent. And what we've been seeing in the, the last uh, two or three decades really is a, a shift to larger, more uniform, more intense fires. And ecosystems aren't getting a chance to recover to the same point that they were before the fires, which has happened uh, previously. So we're getting a, a drift or a shift in the nature of a lot of our landscape. So redistribution of energy, redistribution of the plant species, but it's happening at such a rate, when you compare what's happening now to what would what happen 12 to 15,000 years ago, is that we're seeing this change occur within a, a century, within 100 years. And, and so plants, and in particular, are having trouble or won't be able to keep up. Certainly birds, for example, have uh, already moved significantly. The distribution of birds across the landscape has changed quite dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years, but their habitat is not moving at the same rate, if you like. So uh, we're seeing a dramatic disturbance across the landscape at a rate that really is unprecedented. International fire experts like Kevin Tolhurst, like Stephen Pine and Mike Flanagan all agree not all fire is bad. But our recent history of suppressing fire, of interrupting the natural cycles of renewal, has led to a dangerous buildup of fuels. They advocate controlled burns set by experienced fire crews to spend that fuel. But at the same time, we have to protect ourselves, our homes, our communities, from wildfires like the ones we've seen ravage Kelowna, British Columbia, or San Bernardino, California, or Slave Lake, or Fort McMurray, Alberta. And Stephen Pine says it really comes down to deciding whether we want to go with choice or with chance. I don't think we have to be devoured by large megafires, but we are going to be dealing with fire in these circumstances. They are inevitable. They are essential in many wildlands. We just have to decide whether we're going to you know, have fires of choice or fires of chance. How serious are we going to be? Right now, despite all the, all the interest uh, and, and fierce media attention from time to time under our, our dual templates, either fire as disaster or fire as, as battlefield, we seem to be willing to tolerate the costs. They're not bad enough to make us seriously reform and begin addressing the fundamentals of why is fire doing this and what can we do about it. We're content to just have the firefights, to have these set pieces, lamentable, horrible, genuine angst when communities are hit, but that's not enough to muster the kind of response that, that we need, not yet.
You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. Oh, we made it. We still, we're going to line on the road now pretty soon. We're going to, oh, somebody down right now. Hey, if anybody's still out here, it's time to go. I live in the town of Lahaina, and we did have to evacuate my home. Um... The town is gone. This year's wildfire season has been a wake-up call for many, even veteran firefighters in British Columbia. We fought hard to protect our community. Somebody described it to me last night in the heat of the battle as it was like 100 years of firefighting all at once. And I really think that it it was true. We, we fought 100 years worth of fires. Uh, we had people trapped that's the fire chief's worst nightmare. Those emergency responders were trapped because they were rescuing members of the public who had chosen not to leave. Fire has been humanity's constant companion, from our earliest caves to our modern gas fireplaces. It's given us comfort and amusement, cooked our food and warmed our lives. It's also been our deadly arch nemesis, and now we're cranking up the heat. It is certainly the case that wildfires have always occurred across Canada. But what is new is the frequency and the intensity. And the science is very clear here. The root cause of this is climate change. That is why this year's wildfire season has been so instructive. It has shown us what the future will increasingly look like. It has shown us the costs that a failure to act would bring to our health, our environment, and our economy and our communities. At the same time, we've cozied up to nature, building homes, resorts, even entire cities like Kelowna, British Columbia, and Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, embedded in the very green space fueling the flames. This season, an estimated 5,000 international firefighters have converged on Canada to tame the flames. For some crews, it's not their first time pitching in, and it likely won't be their last. Here's Adrienne Lamb from her 2016 documentary, World on Fire. There's a concert going on in a work camp tucked away in the bush northeast of Slave Lake, Alberta. A dozen young firefighters from South Africa, dressed in hard hats, coveralls and heavy work boots, are starting their day by singing and dancing. You can see the video of their morning routine on our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. The South Africans are part of a growing international group here. In fact, in 2015, crews from Mexico, New Zealand, and all across the United States were working in Alberta forests. There are only so many experienced fire crews, but so many wildfires. And when you ask the South Africans why they sing, 
They say it's to build morale, to steel themselves for the black bush and the hot spots that could flare up in the blink of an eye. Fire crews now travel the world. When their fire season winds down, they gear up and head out to help elsewhere, swapping services on a global scale. Fighting wildfire is never an easy job. Jamie Coots, Fire Chief, Lester Slave Regional Fire Service. Tell me a little bit about yourself. <laughs> uh, not much to tell. Just a plain guy, fire chief, small regional fire service in northern Alberta. Uh, been through some crazy stuff over the last five years. And we begin in Slave Lake, Alberta, where this morning a wildfire has destroyed large parts of the town. The town is gone. There's nothing left. There's places where these should have been houses, and they're gone. We lost everything. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely crazy. It's... Black smoke and no sky, no sun. People going everywhere, you know, people crying, people screaming, people yelling, you know, right around me. My niece's house on fire, my sister-in-law's house on fire. Yeah, I mean, it was like being in an oven while it's turned on and having someone sandblast you with hot embers at the same time. You, you know, you're choking, you can't see, and everything around you is on fire. So when I get to this part of town, this is basically where the burning started. Every house that you see in front of us now, it's 30, 40 houses, we're all on fire that day. Five years later, Jamie Coots patrols the streets in a white pickup truck. And so that this many people rebuilt their lives and this many people rebuilt their homes. In this short we drive time, past homes that have been rebuilt, parks resurrected, and freshly laid sidewalks. Uh, I talked earlier about the human experience and, and how, you know, we all come together and, and how that spirit... Everything looks normal, any town, anywhere. But Jamie Coots is looking beyond the ordinary. He glances up at the sky. You know, everybody's out there saying it's going to be drier and hotter for the next two years. And, uh, you know, the, the earth is changing and I don't know. Some days I feel like being an ostrich and just stick my head in the sand. No one can see me, but... Uh, you know, we just tackle things 15 minutes at a time, right? Right now it's blue sky and sunny. We'll see what it's like in 15 minutes. 15 minutes at a time is how the fire chief in Slave Lake, Alberta, was able to ride out one of the most costly and destructive blazes in Canadian history. But University of Melbourne fire ecologist Kevin Tolhurst expects the road ahead to be even rougher for everyone. In Australia, we've had reoccurring uh, records being broken in terms of uh, hottest summers, hottest uh, months, and uh, largest fires, and that's been reflected elsewhere in the in the world as well, including uh, North America. So, what we're seeing is uh, a rate of climate change that's unprecedented, and and the science tells us that a lot of that climate change has been promoted by human activity, in particular the, the use of fossil fuels. So that we'll come to a new equilibrium eventually, but it's going to be a bumpy ride because we're, we're going so rapidly. Now imagine that ride 
speeding up. It's like putting your foot harder on an accelerator. So fires occur in environments where you go through wet seasons, dry seasons, and uh, those uh, peaks and troughs that we go through, because our foot's harder on the accelerator, we're tending to, to get higher up the peaks and we're getting down the bottom of the valleys more quickly, so we're getting floods and droughts on a more regular basis. And that is part of what drives bushfires. And this acceleration is why Australia has now added a new colour to their fire warning system. It used to run low, moderate, high, very high and extreme. But then they started to get fires that went way beyond extreme. So they had to create a new category. The real message, I guess, about this sixth category that's been added, which uh, is called Code Red or Catastrophic, is that we're now in a new environment. So we're outside all our planning and our design criteria. All bets are off. But what is a man with a really long view of fire? Historian Stephen Pine. What does he think is happening? The needle of, of every environmental compass all seem to be pointing in the same direction, and that's to promote larger and potentially more damaging fires. And global warming, certainly a factor. Um, it seems to be particularly intense in you know, higher latitudes. Uh, a lot of Canada's uh, boreal forest is going to feel it more than other places. But, you know, we would still have serious fire problems even without global warming. So it's an important contributor, but let's not have the fire story hijacked by the global change story. Even if we were to reverse global warming, we would still be back with the task of trying to manage fire under difficult circumstances. In Edmonton, scholar and meteorologist Mike Flanagan can't quite wrap his mind around just how quickly things are changing. It seems the fires are becoming more intense, uh, noticeably more intense. And, you know, this is somewhat surprising because I didn't expect to see it this soon. Um, it's something that I expected down the road, 20 or 30 years, but the last few years we're seeing it already. And this, that's another scary aspect of, of fire. A blanket of smoky haze covers the lower mainland because of wildfires. I've never been in such smoky, hard-to-breathe conditions. People and Smoke blurring city skies, scratchy throats, watery eyes, all tangible signs that something has changed. Right, so when millions of people start being affected by air quality, um, we definitely have an issue. Firefighter Jamie Coots. Uh, wildland fires burning. You know, that's driven by wind and weather and, and uh, that smoke moves around or gets pushed in. And it's very funny for me to watch all those people argue. And, and everyone on every side thinks they're right and that there's no wiggle room, right? There's global warming. No, there isn't. Um, we have to let fires burn. No, we have to put them out. And, you know, being a guy from the front lines, you know, I, I know for a fact that the weather changes every day and that the fires, um, you know, can be here today and 20 kilometers away tomorrow. And so, um, you know, all these people that think they're right and know every little detail, come on out to the front lines and we'll show you what it's like for real. She hit... Uh, 1600 and this thing uh, as we call it blew up 
it was the mother of all fires at that point. You know, us as firefighters don't like losing. And uh, we got beat there. It, uh, it hurt. It's probably the worst experience many, many people have ever faced, losing everything that they have. In fact, I've talked to more than one person that has said to me that if somebody else comes up and tells me, well, all it was is stuff, I'll slap them, she said, because it was my stuff. It's the only stuff I had. Lord, keep us safe. Get us out of Fort McMurray in one piece. Cell phone video capturing the escape of an estimated 88,000 people from Fort McMurray. Gathering in makeshift evacuation centers to start pulling their lives back together and to wait for word about whether their homes were still standing. There's the fear and the sadness, the anger and the loss. And when you talk to people after fires like these, another emotion is always smoldering just below the surface. Regret. That they could have been better prepared or left sooner. That they could have taken this photograph or grabbed that family keepsake before bolting. But for others, it's that if they only stayed, they could have fought the wildfire and saved their home. And that's a choice you have if you live in Australia, or at least going to nearby refuge. Kevin Tolhurst says that may be an option in densely populated areas embedded in the forest, particularly those with only one road out. Or in mountainous areas like British Columbia, California, or east of Melbourne. There's been studies done and there's actually even been trials. It would take between six and eight hours for everyone to be able to drive off that mountain. Well, the fire would be over in that time. So the majority of people would be trapped on the roads uh, trying to get away. So a more sensible approach would be to find safer areas within the uh, environment that they're living that only takes them perhaps 20 minutes or 10 minutes or no more than half an hour to get to uh, where they can take shelter during the passage of the fire rather than being on the road somewhere where there may be trees falling across the road, there may be power lines falling across the road, there may be a road accident. So you then become trapped in your car and you're relying totally on your car for protection. Is on the left hand lane. It's so smoldering. Right now, I am, I am. You take all the pictures. Holy you feel the heat? Yeah. We're not allowing anybody there anymore. Thousands fleeing Fort McMurray in May of 2016 know this all too well. Many ran out of gas. They sat beside the highway, knowing if the wind shifted and the wall of flame and ash came at them, the only thing protecting them would be their car. Here, there is no choice to stay and defend. Mandatory evacuation notices mean everyone must go. But Australia's option to stay and defend also comes with potential peril. Saturday, February the 7th, 2009. Temperatures have been soaring above 40 degrees for days. Author and former frontline firefighter Stephen Pine says, if you make that choice, the risk is on you. So in this sense, it's almost like hurricane predictions. Hey, we think we've got something on the horizon. Uh, if you want to go, go, but, you know, prepare your house. 
If you want to stay, stay, but again, prepare yourself in the house. And it was a kind of civil libertarian notion too that, you know, a man's home is his castle. Uh, why can't he protect it, you know, with a shovel and a pump if he chooses? But the 2009 Black Saturday fires were so savage and so many of the people who were killed had stayed without really doing all of the preparations that they're reevaluating that and issuing sterner warnings that, you know, if you choose to stay, if you have not done the preparations, you may very well die. Everything was on fire around us, literally everything in all directions in the 360 degrees that we could see. The Black Saturday fires killed 173 people, injured another 414, and displaced more than 7,500 Australians from their homes. They were the worst bushfires that country has ever seen. And Kevin Tolher says the intensity was literally off the charts. And so a lot of our uh, building regulations were based on that top level. So that uh, extreme rating had a, an index of 100. On Black Saturday, we saw that theoretical maximum of 100 uh, exceeded. So we, we had uh, fire danger indices somewhere between 200 and 300. It's a logarithmic scale, but it's, it's two or three times greater uh, severity, if you like, to our design and our planning criteria had been. So don't expect to be able to defend your, yourself in the passage of a fire under these conditions. And under these conditions, Mike Flanagan says no one should be sticking around. The leave early is, is good, okay? The stay and defend is completely idiotic. You're up on your roof with a hose or something, and you see this kilometer-wide fire front moving at you with flames 100 meters or more. The, the heat is intense, and it's just scary. If you're close to the bush, you're in harm's way. We've learned, and I think the North Americans, the US and, and Canadians have sort of learned a long time ago, is that just throwing more firefighting resources at fires isn't enough to stop the, the, the most intense and the largest fires. We will never have enough resources or energy to be able to counter the energy rate of release that we see in bushfires. So that's where planning comes into play. Yeah, the fire hall, you know, looking back on it, bunch of spruce trees lead right up to it we had a bunch of pallets that we burned that we used for training stacked up you know maybe 10 meters away from the fire hall those probably all got going and then we had you know the same as everybody else the wrong kind of siding the wrong kind of roof and our new fire hall is all metal everything and there's no trees around it and um, the grass is kept short and so you have fire smarted the fire hall <laughs> yeah we have fire smarted the fire hall you betcha so here we are. Fire Chief Jamie Coots pulls up next to a shiny new $3 million fire station. It's a replacement for an old one lost in the massive wildfire in May of 2011. Inside, new trucks, new hoses, new gear. But the biggest difference is the distance between the building and the bush, the urban-rural interface. 
So it's that space where the trees end and the houses start. And so that used to be very clear. You know, homesteaders would come out and they would say, down this line, they would cut all the trees down. And that would be your field starts here and the wood starts there. And it would be a fence line. Obviously, now when you go into urban areas in Canada, the trees are right in. I mean, it's part of the planning. You know, you go into communities and they say, you have to have cedar shakes on your roof. That's the only thing we allow. And then you surround it with trees. And so 20 years of doing that, now we've got this huge problem and, and it was brought on by ourselves, right? And so, you know, we got to push the bush back a little bit. We got to be smarter with how we build the houses. To a forest fire, houses are just another kind of tree. So there's nothing special about them. It's a burnable piece of material that it, it can hit and attack. And so we have to really think hard about, you know, how we, we interface between the forest and the houses. That's one thing we can do to address the fire issue. The other is the fuel factor. So we can do things about fuel. Now, Canada is vast, okay? We're not going to change the fuels in the boreal forest, but we can change the fuels around communities. And this is called fire smart. In the States, it's called fire wise, but same principle. Some of the guidelines are for homeowners, but some are for communities and you build fire breaks around communities. Millions now being spent on these fire breaks all across North America. And there's other money for new protective tools. We have two sprinkler trailers, we call them. So they're set up with 150 sprinklers and pumps and hose and everything. So you can actually set up sprinklers on houses. And then when the fire's coming into town, if you have a water source, you just turn the pump on and it'll actually... The sprinklers will be on over top of the house, which will bring the relative humidity up and uh, hopefully give you a better chance if uh, embers and stuff are falling on top of your house at the water Meet Fire Smart Coordinator Ryan Coots. Yes, Coots. He's Jamie's son. Ryan was just 15 years old when the big one hit Slave Lake. The first real big moment for me was when me and him were kind of the last ones here and we drove the last pumper that we had, him chatting in my ear the whole time, telling me all to be safe and kind of just in one ear and out the other. And I'm just sitting there staring at this huge black column and pulling around the corner and just seeing it ripping through the trees, which blowing right towards town, right? That was probably definitely the biggest eye-opener for me. That was kind of like my first call, and it was definitely an eye-opener and, yeah, something I'll never forget for sure. No longer a junior firefighting volunteer, Ryan has spent the last five years studying and training. He's now working with the province of Alberta as a fire smart coordinator. In fact, during the Fort McMurray fire, Ryan and Jamie Coots drove those two sprinkler trailers up to help out. From water to technology... Remember the singing South African crew? When they were in Alberta, they trekked through the charred undergrowth, laden with water packs and shovels. But a helicopter hovered overhead, using thermal imaging to pinpoint hot spots beneath the surface, and then relaying the GPS coordinates to the ground crew. A one-two punch from the sky and the ground, allowing workers to know for sure a fire is completely out, 
so they could move on with confidence, knowing a gust of air wouldn't whip it up again. But it's not just new in-the-field tools. Scientists are researching wind and weather, questioning what they thought they knew about wildfire and its behavior. They're growing it with computer simulations or using test burns. One experiment was done in Carrot Lake, British Columbia. Researchers from Natural Resources Canada set a test fire and recorded what happened from inside the inferno using a special water-cooled camera. The images surprised even experts like Mike Flanagan. Most people think, hey, you're speeding up the video. No, this is real time. And the winds must have been 40 to 50 kilometers per hour. So the fire-generated winds were much stronger than I anticipated. And the way the fire spread was completely different. How the fire spread was a whole bunch of little spots, little embers, like almost raining embers in front of it. And I expected more of a surface fire moving you know, forward. But in this crown fire, it was raining these little drops of embers, and that's how it was spreading. And I never would have expected that. Researchers are sharing data, firefighters swapping best practices, and everyone questioning what they thought they knew about wildfire. But that's happening in the background. The people of Slave Lake, Alberta, are just focusing on getting back to a new normal. From a world on fire in 2011 to this. It's dusk, but still enough light for three teenage boys to navigate the concrete skateboard park with their trick bikes and boards. Just past the park, new homes in a subdivision that now looks like any other. The other day, on Friday, my next-door neighbors had a yard sale. Well, and they had rebuilt, too, and I thought to myself, already? Like, you just... Where are you getting stuff to have a yard sale already? I don't know if I have stuff to have a yard sale yet, you know. It's quite amazing that you'll have the neighbors over for a, a sociable or, or you'll be sitting at a, at a restaurant and talking to the table next to you and nine times out of ten the conversation will turn around to where did you go after the fire? It's a topic that will never ever go away for the residents that were here at the time. Although it's not with us every minute of every day, there certainly are triggers that make us remember what happened. It never will go. It will never go. It will just stay at the back of your head for the rest of your life. And, and when we have the fires, you're always panicking. And the hairs go up on the back of your neck. And you want, you want to make sure you've got all your possessions in order and ready to go. The biggest lesson? The biggest lesson, I guess, you can't beat Mother Nature. You just can't. You can't tell her what to do. And uh, as much as you try to control her, that uh, you never really have two hands on the whole situation. So sometimes we win and sometimes she does. And my healing process was probably, you know, looking at those pictures a thousand times and talking about that a hundred times and, and uh, getting people's reaction and questions from, you know, we were as 
far east as Halifax and and as far uh, west as Vancouver. So, you know, we got to talk it all through. And at the end of the day, I didn't light the fire. And uh, I got to be part of the team that put it out. So, you know, we're there from from start to finish. It's not our fault, but uh, we did the best we could. And whether fires of our future are sparked by man or ignited by Mother Nature, we need to come to terms with the new reality. Regardless of where you live in the world, if you're in a fire-prone environment, uh, you have to appreciate that we're in a new reality and that the truth will come out and that truth will be, uh, could be quite brutal. And that truth about what we're facing now has changed the way I see that grove of trees from my childhood. Now I see past the leaves and the dappled shade, past the birds. I see the forest filled with fuel lying in wait to the potential for disaster. Certainly not as picturesque, but the devastation should make us all think about how we understand our world on fire. Fire was our first domestication. Fire is the core catalyst for much of our technology, certainly all of chemistry. Um, fire may very well also be our first Faustian bargain because what we do with fire in one area, running our cars, affects fire in our national forests. And what we do with fire management in the Rocky Mountains affects our lives in the cities. Fire is a way of integrating that, and it's not been integrated intellectually. And so give fire its story and use that to help us understanding a whole suite of things that our firepower is making possible uh, for good or ill. You've been listening to World on Fire, a documentary by Adrian Lamb of CBC Edmonton with production by Dave Riddell and Corey Haberstrock. It was originally broadcast in May 2016 during the Fort McMurray wildfire. It inspired a CBC original podcast series called World on Fire. You can find all eight episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll have more on this topic in the spring here on Ideas. In the meantime, you can head to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. That's where you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and find out more about upcoming and past programs at cbc.ca slash ideas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Danielle Duval is technical producer. Senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.